0: You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 45. Today we're speaking with Susan Thompson, an Ames and SETI Institute scientist featured in a NASA press conference today announcing the latest planet catalog from NASA's planet hunting Kepler mission. All this week, NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley is hosting a scientific conference for Kepler and K2 researchers. In addition, partner organizations across the Bay Area are hosting public events that you can attend, so check out the show notes for a link to information about the Kepler Exoplanet Week activities. In the meantime, here is Susan Thompson. Susan, welcome. Uh, We love (laughs) starting it off with, uh, like tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you join NASA? How did you end up in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley? Oh,
1: wow, yeah. I got my PhD in astronomy from North Carolina. So I've kind of lived all over the place. I grew up in Wisconsin, and then I did my Midwest uh, Hanover College uh, undergraduate and decided, no, astronomy is a thing for me. And I ended up at North Carolina and then I decided I wanted to teach. So I went to be a professor, and I taught for three years as a visiting professor at the Colorado College, and so I moved to Colorado. (laughs) And all the time
0: zones. Yeah, Yeah, I pretty much have lived in every time zone.
1: That's absolutely true. (laughs) Uh, From there, I, decided, you know what? I miss research. I want to know more about these stars I'm working on and ended up working for this great um, collaboration called the Whole Earth Telescope which is being run out of the University of Delaware. And so this is a collaboration of like Mm -hmm. 20 telescopes around the world that try to get um, time series data of one star at a time. So they look at one star for a month and just try to see if it gets brighter and dimmer and brighter and dimmer. And from that we learned the structure of the star, etc. But from there I was like, well I need a real job now and (laughs) just around that same time Kepler was coming online. And what does Kepler do? But time series photometry of stars, but not just one star, hundreds of thousands of yes. stars. And so I said, I think I could do that job. And so I applied for it and got it. And so I, that's what brought me to the Bay Area was to do work on Kepler.
0: I'm imagining growing up in Wisconsin, was it a lot of staring up at the skies, wondering about the stars? <laughs> Were you always like a NASA nerd, kind of like getting into it? or?
1: <laughs> well, I did live... Way out in the suburbs, so I was able to lie on my in my front yard and was able to at once. I even saw the Andromeda Galaxy from that. Oh wow! But I would be able to go out every night and like say, "Oh, there's Mars," and that's when I learned about retrograde motion. And so, and my dad took me out to see Halley's uh, Comet when it came around. Oh, wow. So yes, I was an astronomy nerd from a very young age. The first CV or I guess resume I ever had to make in high school, it said you had to list your goals at the top, and he said, "I want to work for NASA." So nice. this is actually in some ways like living the dream.
0: <laughs> well, and also, like I think, from living, I grew up in Ohio, and you oh, go yeah. into the Midwest. Somewhere it's like no light pollution. You, yeah, we absolutely. had an astronomy club, and you go way out in the middle of nowhere in some cornfields, and
1: yeah, there are days I everything. really miss that because we do not have it here in the Bay Area.
0: Nope, it's a lot of light pollution. Got <laughs> to light. Get, get up into the mountains in order yeah, to see stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: Go out to Yosemite, great, great skies there.
0: So when you came out here, it was literally just to it was to work on Kepler, and yeah. and so what exactly are you doing with Kepler? Are you you, like looking at all of the information as it comes in, sorting that out? What exactly? How does your role fit in?
1: Um, Well, my role initially was to get all the archive products together. So Kepler collects a lot of data. You know, we we observe 180,000 stars every half an hour.
0: And we okay. did that for four years. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so we and we we weren't gonna be able to go through all that data and get all the cool science out of it, so we'd make sure everybody else could get at it as well. And so that's where I came into play. I needed to organize it and make sure people could get to our results, understand the things we understood about it and make sure they could get at the data and do their science. And so you know, I did lots of weird technical <laughs> things like, should we call this period or with a capital P or a lowercase p? It sounds very interesting that way. So I did a lot of that. And I also helped understand what some of the noise sources in our data were. Mm-hmm. And um, and then this last project I'm working on has been actually trying to catalog some of the planets we've been finding.
0: And so I've, I've heard that a handful of times from talking to different Kepler folks um, of like a catalog of data or the archive. It, it, does this happen throughout the throughout the mission cycle of the primary mission of Kepler? Is it like, all right, here's a cache of a whole bunch of information and you get that out to the public or to scientists? How, how does that divide up? How do you work that out?
1: Well, Kepler downloads data about every 3 months during when it was taking data for the the original Kepler mission. Okay. And so we tried to release it, I guess within 6 months of it coming out, and that was like it wasn't it was processed data, but mm-hmm. all it was was time, you know, the brightness of these stars every okay. half an hour, those measurements so other people could get their results. Then we also did a search for our transiting signals, for our transiting exoplanets, and we had to catalog those as well. So that was more of a, a list of here are interesting signals we have found in the data.
0: Okay, and, and I'd imagine over the life cycle of, of the mission, I mean, you get the first, or what you suspect would be a transit of a whole bunch of stars, but then after, if you see those blips pop up again, two years, three years, four years That's after. That's right.
1: So, so first we searched, you know, just the first year data, and then we searched two years of data, and then we searched three years of data, and you know, some of the things we found in two years of data, they were great planets, wonderful. But some of the yeah. things that were smaller signals, you know, when we searched longer data sets, oh, they disappeared, and we were a little oh. sad. That happens from time <laughs> to time. But we knew that. I mean, we knew some of the things were reporting as candidates. There's a reason why we call them Planet Candidates, and that's one of the reasons, is we know that sometimes we get a little fooled by the noise. And so it was nice to get even longer data sets.
0: And so it's not just like, hey, it took a whole bunch of data in those first three months. You get it, you send it out, and then you get more data and send it out. It's like you're constantly comparing the most recent data to that series of, like, to the archive and to the rest of the catalog to see yeah, how it Yeah, we it do. We, we
1: look to see how they're connected to the, the previous data we had sent out and our previous results, seeing how we can improve upon what we've done before as well.
0: And, and so for the folks listening who, I mean, we this is an interesting, fun week or month for Kepler, especially looking at June of 2017. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, just the, the, gen, the general Kepler world of, you know, like, <laughs> looking up into the stars, you know, every star having a planet. Like what exactly is it that like Kepler confirmed?
1: So, yeah, yeah Kepler was looking for transiting exoplanets. So we're yeah. looking for that time when the planet's pass in front of the star and so we can tell that a planet is there. As it has done this it has collected more than 4,000 candidate planets and we've c- confirmed which means we've ruled out that these these dips in the brightness yeah. are really due to planets so we've confirmed like 2300 of them and I, this is more planets than any other anybody else has found <laughs> from any other mission or collection of telescopes so it has been profound to people who are doing um planets around other stars so yeah what exactly does kepler look at so it's staring at stars looking at like the transits So, I mean, Kepler does not create pretty pictures, honestly. (laughs) Uh, You you can take a a CCD camera that you would take, I don't know, from your cell phone or something, and we stuck it on a telescope, and you look at these pictures, and like the stars are these blocks. (laughs) Just just like a pixel. It's just like a pixel. Like one star will lie on maybe one pixel or maybe on ten pixels, but that's it. We're just looking at stars because all we're trying to do is collect how bright the star is. We are not... Um, trying to take pretty pictures of galaxies, so okay. we just w- we we want to get an accurate measure of how bright it is because when a planet passes in front of the star, it changes in brightness, but not by a lot. How do you measure that?
0: How, how can you measure that brightness of that star? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm imagine
1: I'm... a bucket, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and um, and seriously, you're just throwing light into this bucket okay. for for. Uh, You know, for 30 minutes. Um, Yes. As I collect it, and then I put a lid on it, and then I go and weigh the bucket if light had mass. But you know, if you weigh it and you said, ah, that's how much, how bright it was in that half an hour. Okay. Okay. And then you just do that every half an hour. Okay. And then if the light decreases, you'll discover that your bucket is slightly lighter. And it's like, these are like
0: minuscule, like movements. It's like a super white pixel, and it's slightly
1: less. Yeah, you're not going to even see. If you looked at this, like a movie of the star, you wouldn't notice it changing in brightness. Yeah. You, you really have to do the measurements and count them up. Because uh, an Earth, for instance, passing in front of um, a star is is like 100 parts per million. That's mm-hmm. that's what we're looking for. That's the decrease in flux we're looking for. That's oh, 0.01%. And,
0: and so talk a little bit about the plants, because like not only you're seeing that yes, a planet exists that is transiting, but you can get a little bit more information. You can get into like, is it an Earth-sized planet? How so, far away is it from the star? Yeah,
1: from doing transiting surveys for, of exoplanets, what you can measure is its period and how big it is. That's pretty much the two things we have. From its the period of the orbit, using Kepler's law, we mm-hmm. can get how far away it is from its star. So we actually know how far away it is and we know how big it is. Okay. From that, we're inferring everything else. So we kind of infer that if something comes out to be at the size of the Earth, that it's probably a rocky planet kind of like the Earth. And if we find things are the size of Jupiter, then they're probably puffy, puffy, gassish things like Jupiter. Now, if you have something like a Jupiter planet, there are other measurements people can take to start to confirm like the mass of the planet as well. But that doesn't come from Kepler alone. We have to collaborate with Mm. our other astronomer friends and get them to take other data for us. That's why
0: you have other space telescopes, land-based telescopes, all these different, more data points looking at the same location. That's
1: right. So we get more data and that'll tell us more about the planets.
0: And so when you're looking at, you know, whether or not a planet that is like an exoplanet, you know, whether it's Earth's size or not, it also matters like that distance away. But I'd imagine that has to do with like, how bright is that star burning, I guess, because then that would that would help dictate what that. That Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold. Yeah, the so you're Goldilocks getting into zone. the Goldilocks zone or the yeah. habitable zone,
1: as we like to call yes. it. So, what it's like on the surface of that planet is going to have a lot to do with what the star is like. Okay. Right? So, if you're um, around a, a cool star, because we have cool stars and we have hot stars and <laughs> we have stars like our sun, which are kind of in between. So, if you have like a small cool star and yeah. you were in a one year orbit around that, you would find it to be a very chilly place. You wouldn't necessarily want to live there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it'd be ice and cold everywhere. But if you moved, into an orbit that was maybe 20 days or so then you'd find it to be very temperate something very nice go to the beach have a nice day <laughs> but you know that's just one factor that determines what it's like on the on your planet I mean one thing we frequently get confused when we're talking about planets is that mm-hmm. we we have this habitable zone and it gives us this impression that if, if something's in this habitable zone that it's definitely habitable we're, we're totally good but yeah but it's there's so much more we can know about these planets we don't no idea what the surface is made of we don't know what the atmosphere is made of or even how thick the atmosphere is if there's water on the planet. Mm -hmm. So these are things that is going to be for the next NASA missions to figure (laughs) out. Right now, we're just trying to count how many are there and kind of what types they are.
0: And so right now, it's like it's literally gathering all the information, all that data, and then getting that out for people to to look at it and see what they can learn from it. And and it's interesting because it's not just NASA looking at it. It's the public to a large extent. The
1: public is looking at it. Lots of scientists around the world are looking at this data, which is why it was so important to get it organized in a way everybody could use. Didn't want them to come to ask me for every question they have about the data.
0: (laughs) I keep hearing it referred to as like, like a survey. You're almost kind of looking at the demographics of a star.
1: Oh, it's some, more, we're yeah. doing the demographics of planets around other yes, stars. that's what, yeah. That's what we're doing. Yeah, we're trying to figure out what types of planets are most common out there. And eventually, people will hope to figure out then how common are planets that are kind of like the Earth.
0: So speaking about that, then, like, what is some of the things that have kind of surprised you? Are there some types of planets that are a little bit more common, I don't know, anything So that it kind looks
1: of like one of the most surprising things is that there's a lot of planets that appear to be nothing like our planet Earth or okay. like any other planet in our solar system. We have a bunch that are somewhere between Neptunes and between Earths. That are, you know, maybe two to three Earth radii. This is the most common kind of planet that Kepler has found, but we don't seem to have one like this in our solar system. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a mystery to us exactly what this planet would be like. So that's one of the unusual things we've found with Kepler. We've also found planets around bizarre stars, like binary systems, which is one of the coolest finds we've ever found. Um, The first one, Kepler-16, is a binary star, and they actually were able to find an exoplanet going around the binary star, which means planets can form around binary stars. And it's not the only one. They have now found dozens of these.
0: I would imagine that transit has to be weird around a binary. because It's It's hard to find.
1: It's almost impossible to find. I mean, the way we look for planets normally is we look for a super periodic event. So it happens and then it happens again mm-hmm. 10 days later and again 10 days later. And so it's easy to see because you know where to go look. But in this case, it's harder to figure out where to go look because sometimes it's passing in front of one of the stars and then sometimes it's passing in front of another of the stars. And those two stars are moving around each other as well. Mm-hmm. And they're eclipsing each other. So they're yeah. blocking each other's light as well. So there's a lot going on in this time photometric time series of that data and so to go through it and find a transit is a lot of work and I think Seriously the first few they really did just find by hand. They just scanned wow. through the light curves looking for them.
0: And so like even on these binaries it's like are they st- are the stars like actually like really close like from our eye they would look like it's just one point or do they tend to be question. a little bit further away? So these binary
1: stars are so far away and the binary is actually a very tight binary that it looks like one star to us. Okay. So the only reason we know they're binaries is that they're passing in front of each other so they're blocking each other's lights in what we call an eclipse,
0: gathering this data and putting it into the catalog, like so. How does that play out for like your day to day? You're coming in, you get your coffee, you're sitting down at your desk, you have your laptop, you're like I'm am I'm gonna look, I'm gonna go hunting for exoplanets. Uh, how, does the, how does Susan's day to day go? How does my
1: day to day go? My day to day is more of a all right. Here is my list of possible exoplanets, <laughs> and we hunted through 34,000 oh, wow. possible events that came out of the you know Kepler did this big search and came up with 34,000 possible events, and we had to go through that and whittle it down to what appears to be about 4,000. Now I didn't do this by, um, well, I didn't do this by looking at each individual one, though we used to do it that way. Day by day we'd go in, we seriously would have days where we would uh, go and just look at plots. Someone would generate thousands of plots and you'd walk in and you'd (laughs) go, looks like a transit, looks like a transit, looks like a variable star. (laughs) I mean, It was like junk, junk, variable star, planet, ooh, it would be like that. We stopped doing it that way. Okay. It just was too much effort. <laughs> it was time. too inconsistent. Uh, so we, I, my day to day for a long time was thinking of ways that why did I decide this one was a planet and this one was not a planet? Okay. What properties was I looking at to distinguish them from each other? So. We did not designed algorithms basically. You can say it's yeah, an yeah that separate to them too, yeah. and and we also designed ways of injecting de- um, signals into our data so that we knew that once we created this algorithm that it should find all of these injected transits, and we found oh. ways of simulating our noise, and we tried to figure out ways to be sure that those same algorithms would remove that noise and so we could balance them that way. So you know, one day I'd walk in and go, okay, I'm supposed to work on this algorithm. It's not separating things as well as it should. How can I tweak it to make it better? And so it was a lot of things like that. These days, it's a lot more of writing up. I sit in my computer and type up what we've done because we're almost done.
0: Okay, yeah, because it's like the primary mission finished, but. That primary mission, when that was over, are you still like
1: downloading data from that primary mission, or is it just
0: sifting through it, trying to organize it? Right.
1: We stopped taking data for this primary mission, so we were looking at the field in Cygnus. We call it the Cygnus field sometimes, and so that data stopped being collected in 2014. So we've been working on this same data set for three years now.
0: Oh wow! I'd imagine before you're doing the algorithm, you're just kind of looking at like different time periods, like number one, number two. (laughs) Is it brighter? Is it less brighter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't even know how, how do you even do
1: that? We have code that actually okay. goes through and, and can plot up what we call a light curve. It shows you the brightness versus time. I look at a lot of plots. Mm. I, you know, I plot things up and I scan through them. But since we had this, um, the Kepler pipeline, as we call it, it, does, it did all the searching for us. It even told us where to go looking. It gave us the period of the planets and and where in the these light curves to go looking for the transits. So okay. I had that as well. So I just say, okay, show me this possible candidate. And it would show me the light curve centered around where I expected the transit to be. So a lot of looking at the data was looking at those transits and saying, ah, yeah, indeed, that has the shape that I would expect if it was a planet passing in front of a star.
0: And I'd imagine that like, even before Kepler was launched and like, it sent out and they decided, this is the patch of sky that we want to look at. i sure, like, all of that was based on like Science and understanding, taking like the best logical guess of what would be an interesting location in the sky. But then I'd imagine all the information that you've got now, that's helping to perfect whether it's Tess or the James Webb Telescope to then, I don't know. It, it kind of calls out the interesting stars and exoplanets and possibilities and so, so Kepler so was specific.
1: Builds. We specifically tried to look at stars that were kind of like our sun. Okay. That was what we were trying to do. So they picked a part of the sky that. We could, you know, where this, there was lots of stars, but not too many stars. We wanted them to be only slightly confused with each other because two stars sometimes end up in the same line of sight and then you get them confused. Mm. We didn't want that to happen too much. So we came out just outside the galactic plane and we tried to pick a place where we could find lots of sun like stars. The great thing about TESS coming up is that it's going to do the whole sky, it's going to do everything that's oh, bright. Nice. So. It's a completely different survey in that way. Okay. Uh, it's going to find uh, planets around really bright stars, around um, nearby stars, and this is not something that Kepler could do. I mean, it did a little bit of that, but it, yeah. you know, it doesn't. It's not a full survey for those kind of planets.
0: But it's also, in fairness, it's like people suspected that exoplanets were a thing, but it wasn't until Kepler to really like confirm.
1: That. Right. Now we know that TESS is going to find a lot of planets. Oh. Going into Kepler, people were saying, oh well there's lots of hot Jupiters out there, but you know, for all we know, Earth-like yeah. planets are rare. It, it's hard to say. You know, they had some guess, but they didn't really know. And now that they've done the search, we've realized there's a lot of planets out there. And so I'm really excited to see what TESS is going to find because they're looking at pretty much every star that you that you can see with your eye, and then some, and from there they're going to find a lot of planets. And I just hope they're ready for all that data.
0: Well, and I think back to the beginning, and you're talking about growing up in Wisconsin, going, you know, to North Carolina for school, being in Boulder. It's like the textbooks that you used for your astronomy classes have been, for the most part, like re not rewritten completely, but. You've added more chapters, well, the Kepler mission has added new chapters to Absolutely. what people learn. Yes, yes. Like how, how, it's kind of got to blow your mind, Of you know, you're know, you literally in the forefront of where the science is going.
1: Yeah, it's it's a cool experience to be able to open up an astronomy textbook and realize that you know more than what the textbook is telling you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was one of those moments where I said, wow, yeah, I've reached that level. Because <laughs> I frequently still think of myself as a 25-year-old who knows nothing, which is why science is fun to do right you can yes. just sit there and say oh i can you know, go play with toys i know nothing i'm going to go find out things but it is also true that yeah i know more than some of the textbooks
0: and so stepping back then how many planets is it now that it's been confirmed or you can estimate it more or less <laughs> give or always take. want to know how many
1: planets there are i know <laughs> they love numbers hard numbers and the problem is is that uh, you know, science is a bit messy. They come and they go. Yeah, so we, candidate. <laughs> we have a lot of candidates. And yes, so that's the, nice. the catalog we're putting out right now, I can tell you, has 4,034 candidates in it. Okay. Not all of them are going to end up being planets. Okay. And uh, certainly, when through the search, we missed a few planets. Mm-hmm. I know this to be true. And so, uh, it's... It's a good number to have because you can say this is my catalog. But I also know that there's still a few places where you know noise is still getting in the way. Yeah. And and but what we what's really cool about this catalog is actually we've accounted for our noise. We've never done this before. And so people who are just trying to count how many planets are actually there can say, oh, well. Susan tells me that we've mm-hmm. overcounted this type of planet by 5%, so I can subtract that off if I'm counting planets. And so the catalog we're putting out now is really good for counting planets and I mean, it didn't add a lot, it's like 210 new planets. Ah, 210 new planets, that's not that okay. much, because we already we found 4,000 of them. <laughs> so it seems like it's not very much. Though honestly, if this was the, uh, 210 was still a lot for most people's surveys.
0: And, and when is this catalog, this is the last catalog, right? This is, or... This is
1: the last time Kepler, um, um, like from NASA is going to produce a large catalog. Though we still have a cleanup catalog that's going to come after okay. this. So calling it the last catalog feels yes. a little too final. People are going to continue to work on this, and so you know it's it's just the when latest this? catalog. Yes, and when is this
0: catalog coming
1: out? Uh, the paper is currently being written. The nice. catalog itself is entirely available to everybody right now. Oh, we really? We released it before we got the paper written because people are sort of familiar with what's in it already. And so we've written up a few online notes about how to use it, and it's all available at the NASA Exoplanet Archive. You can go get it right now if you want. And um, we are working on getting the documentation together so people can make the most use of it.
0: Yeah, and we're going to be releasing this episode in in June. So during which I what I've dubbed our Kepler week, we have a whole mm. bunch of Kepler activities. Cool. Um, different people coming and speaking at Ames. Different people talking about about the program, about the mission. So what are you going to be? What are you going to be doing during this week?
1: During the week of June. Uh, This is probably during the K2 SciCon. That's what I'm going to be doing. We'll be announcing this exact catalog. We're coming from
0: the past.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully I'll be waking up early and ready to give a great talk on the (laughs) the, uh, DR25 Kepler candidate catalog. It should be lots of fun.
0: Excellent. So, for anybody listening, you're you're just if their ears peaked up for like the science con, what is what called. It the psycon. It's Kepler sci-con. the Kepler K2 psycon. The Kepler K2 psycon, which is probably one of the best names ever for a conference. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, Comic-Con. It's it's like a comic con. It's a comic con.
1: It will be as, as much fun as a comic con. Fewer people dressed up.
0: People can dress dress up as their favorite exoplanet. That's a
1: great idea. We should. Do I that. know.
0: It's like just a lot of variations of spheres. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Different colored spheres. Different
0: colored Different spheres. Different
1: sizes. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so for anybody who has any questions, for, for Susan, any questions about Kepler, uh, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We're also at NASA Kepler, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So come on over to the NASA.gov for like all kinds of interesting content that'll be coming out, videos, animations, all, all the fun stuff um, related to the PsyCon. So... Thank you so much for coming over, it's been fun. Oh,
1: absolutely, it was great fun, thanks.